If you're someone who has a passion for cut flowers, our environment, and wants to make the world more beautiful, you're in the right place. Whether you're growing flowers for pleasure or profit, I'm on a mission to empower flower enthusiasts and professionals to help change the world around them. Whether you're just starting out and need a helping hand, or are looking to scale a substantial flower business, I'm your cut flower woman. Welcome to the Cut Flower Podcast. Um, so let me, no further ado, thank you very much for joining us tonight. And if you're watching this on replay, please let us know you're watching it on replay. So here tonight, we have Dave Goulston, we have Marianne Boswell, and we have Dave, David Beck, but I know him as Dave Beck, but we've decided we've got one David and one Dave. Um, and we've just discussed that both Dave and David are professors, because David has just been awarded a professor, but he can tell you a bit more about that. Um, so that's amazing. So, and I'm Ros Chandler. I think most of you probably know me. Um, but let's introduce it, David. Do you, Dave? Do you want to kick off? This is. I'm going to get really confused with this. Dave, do you want to kick off um, and tell the audience who you are, what you do, where you're from? What's that TV program that says? Tell the audience who you are, where you're from, and what you do. It's some sort of dating. But hey. That's like blind date, but that's ancient. <laughs> that's it, it's anyway. blind date. I'm showing my age. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so as you know, uh, my name is Dave Wilson. I'm a professor of biology at the University of Sussex. That's where I'm from, more or less. And uh, I specialise in studying bumblebees. Um, actually, I, I've been I've been interested in insects all my life. Don't know why. Just ever from when I was a little kid, I was slightly obsessed by catching things, finding caterpillars and keeping them in jam jars and all that kind of stuff. And I, I never grew out of it and um, somehow managed to make a living out of chasing around after insects. Um, so although bumblebees are my speciality, I kind of try to champion the insect world in general. They don't get much credit, poor little things. And uh, sadly, they're, they're in need of help. They're in decline. So I try and persuade the world to, to look after them better. Um, particularly in gardens. I've written various books, uh, things like The Garden Jungle. Sorry for plugging my books. <laughs> Absolutely not. And Silent Earth is the newest one. Um, is that a little backwards to you? Anyway. <laughs> no, um, no, it's right. It's the right way. It's right for you, is it? It's, it's, yeah. it's like mirror image for me. Um, anyway, yes, yeah, so I guess that'll, that'll do from me. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. I've followed you. I've read all your books. I'm a fan. I'm one of the fans. Um, I love bees in all varieties um, and we can talk more about what you grow and how you grow and how you encourage bees and I love rewilding and I love the fact that Chelsea Flower Show is now championing rewilding and I love nettles and I love dandelions and I love weeds. Um, I've got to because they're there and they I'm not going to I'm not going to get rid of them so I just admit that I, I, when people ask me I say I'm rewilding um, so that's absolutely fine. So brilliant thank you Dave thank you and welcome. Marianne, because you're on the next one on my screen, perhaps you'd love to introduce yourself. Hello. Yes, all right. not that far away, really. I'm in Kent. Um, I'm not so far away from Brighton, really. Um, I, I'm a landscape architect, and I uh, I was a lecturer at the University of Greenwich, and I uh, started off doing historic garden conservation, and really from um, working in historic estates, you soon realise that there's not much room for ego if you're following in the 
path, the footsteps of Capability Brown and so on. So it, it led me down a quite a gentle path of how to um, honour what's gone before and really use materials which are in keeping with um, with the land. And I see myself as offering um, a pathway back to nature's wisdom in terms of how I work. Um, I'm very interested in sustainability and regenerative um, agriculture and regenerative design. My book is called Sustainable Garden. It's over there. I might go and get it in a minute. But I haven't got it to <laughs> got a beautiful right. cover, beautiful cover. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so the work that I do now, um, as you can see some of it behind me, is um, working on floodplain restoration, re-wiggling rivers, putting in hedgerows and woodlands and trying to work with soil um, and bringing all of that, not just on the larger state scale and farm scale, but also into our gardens. Because um, as I know, when we talk to both Dave's and David's, what we do for our soil all the way up is just incredibly powerful. And every single gardener has the power to make a difference. So I'm really excited to translate from big to little and little to big. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. And David, Professor David. Thank, thanks, Rose. Good evening, everybody. Yep. So I'm uh, David Beck, and I'm a professor of sustainability and economic development, according to the recent letter I received from the vice chancellor, which was exciting to know what I'm a professor in. Um, now, sustainability, yeah. So it's a term that's sort of become very popular in recent times, and in fact, my just sort of following the theme we've already started this evening of Sussex. I did my undergrad at Sussex University more years ago than I dare mention, so uh, for commonality commonality here. But while I was doing my undergrad studies in geography and development studies, that was literally the time when climate change started to appear in undergraduate curricula. Uh, so in my third year, you know, we, we received a new curriculum that had this, this thing in it with um, graphs showing changes in the amount of carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere. Um, showing how it had increased at that point, I don't know, by 10 or 15% since the Industrial Revolution and things, which is actually a pitifully small amount compared with what's happened in the uh, the years subsequently. It's, I think it's gone up by about another 30, 40, 50 parts per million since then. So, so yeah, that's really where my interest in in these kind of issues was, was peaked. Um, years later, I ended up in, in academic research. I'm currently at Coventry University in the Centre for uh, Business business in society where uh, I do a lot of work in sustainability related to horticultural supply chains, uh, particularly the cut flower industry. Um, A lot of my initial work was based in South Africa when I was originally really interested in ethical supply chains, workers' rights on farms and so forth. And then I discovered a thing called um, wild harvesting of foliage and flowers in the South African landscape, which I found really, really fascinating um which i might talk about a little bit more later on but that kind of got me going for a few years quite be quite a big project on that when i was working for durham university um and then it all morphed when i got to coventry because it's turned into the sustainable cut flowers project which myself and a colleague jill timms who at the time was at coventry we set up and jill had done work on certifications in the cut flower industry and everything's really gone on from there so there's a lot of my work is based on trying to understand what sustainability means in the context of the flower industry uh, what the challenges are and what the opportunities are and so forth and uh, no doubt we're going to come back to some of those things and particularly how they relate to the choices we make as everyday consumers 
because uh, flowers are part of our lives. And yet there's a lot going on behind the wrapping of the bouquet. <laughs> there definitely is. And um, why am I interested in the environment? Of course, I'm a flower farmer. I'm flower farming just outside um, Milton Keynes, over five acres. And I've been doing that for 12 years. But I think in my career, I've come full circle because I too, my undergraduate degree was in environmental chemistry, which in 1985, I can admit to that, 1985, an awful long time ago, um, nobody really knew what it meant. And I'm not even sure I did. It kind of, um, they, they gave me a place at Plymouth, Polytechnic as it was then. And I went, traveled five, down, five hours down the M5 in my little mini, not really knowing where I was going and what I was going to end up doing. And I ended up with a degree in environmental chemistry, of which my thesis, unbelievably, when I look back on it now, was all to do with nitrates in uh, farmers um, on farmers' land and how that would end up in water and what impact that would have. And I remember going to the River Lee in the middle of the night with my sample bottles and running back to my lab in Plymouth and being really excited at the age of sort of 20, thinking I found something really exciting. And we talked then about the ozone layer and carbon and CO2. And that was how many years ago? I mean, that was 40 years ago. And we have not really moved on very much from then. Um, so I think I've come full circle in my kind of interests and gone back to my roots, which is quite interesting. So um, yes, so welcome all. I can't wait for this evening. This is really exciting. So I'm going to kick off with some questions for you all, and then I can go from them. So Dave Galston, I'm going to call you Dave, and then I'll remember. How much in reality have the insects on our planet declined? Because we talk about decline and we talk about, you know, counts and bees and butterflies. But seriously, how serious is the problem with insect decline? Yeah, it's quite a tricky one to answer. And I'll, I'll sound like a typical scientist who can't give a straight answer to a question here, but actually maybe a politician. Um, but the reality yeah, is we don't, we don't have any data for most insects. Yeah, there are there are 1.1 million species of insect that we know of. Most of them no one's counting. Um, but we do have a number of studies of particular insect groups, and they almost all show the same rather alarming pattern of decline. Um, probably the best data we have is uh, for butterflies in the UK, um, which since 1976, when we started counting them, have roughly halved in total abundance, which is pretty sad. You know, that means that my kid is, my, my boys are growing up in a world with half as many butterflies as the one I grew up in. Um, we, we don't have really long-term data sets for bees or hoverflies or most other insects, but people have analysed maps and changes in distributions of bees and hoverflies. And on average, uh, wild bees and hoverflies have lost about 30% of their range since 1980. So they've disappeared from 30% of the places they were found uh, in 1980. Um, and, and elsewhere in the world, there's some really alarming data. Like the, 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 There's quite a well-known German study which found a 76% decline in flying insect biomass um, in 26 years. So seemingly three-quarters of the German insects have disappeared in quarter of a century which is pretty terrifying um so yeah all the data we have suggests decline the, i think for me the, the sort of aspect to this that i find most worrying is we don't really know the magnitude of the total decline because we only started counting them relatively recently so the oldest data set we have is 
the butterfly one starting in 76. But insects didn't start declining in 76. It's a pretty good bet. Um, all the kind of landscape changes which we know are driving decline and pesticide use and everything started many decades earlier than that. So we're probably measuring the tail end of a much bigger decline, but we'll never know how big. Mm, that's a little bit worrying. Mm. So, Sorry, how it's do so we? It's really depressing. So, does encouraging insects in our garden really help them? I mean, why, why, why do we need to? Why do? What can we yeah, do to well, encourage insects? Well, obviously, insects are really important, and I could talk at length about this. But they, um, uh, the, the, obviously, the, everyone knows they pollinate three quarters of the crops we grow. Um, uh, and they recycle, they keep the soil healthy, you know, they get rid of dead bodies and cow pats and tree trunks, and they, they do all sorts of stuff. They're food for m- m- many birds, bats, and other creatures. Basically, we need insects. We, the, the, the world couldn't, it sounds very dramatic, but, but ecosystems will collapse without insects. Um, and actually, I think gardens really help. You know, the, the, it's it's an easy win, at least. It's not going to solve all our problems. But if we made our gardens more wildlife friendly, there are about 22 million private gardens um, in the UK, and they cover about 400,000 hectares, which is a bigger area than all of our national nature reserves put together. Um, so, you know, my sort of rather optimistic, crazy dream is is of all of those gardens full of friendly wildflowers and pesticide free with a nice compost heap and a pond and a shaggy overgrown lawn and all the things that we know help wildlife and and if we could then get the councils on board so they don't mow the road verges every five minutes and the roundabouts and the parks and the cemeteries and and so on and have those also pesticide free zones then that you know that would be a national network of of insect wildlife friendly habitat and and it's an easy win because we don't really have to pay any price for that apart from getting used to a, a slightly l- less tidy world perhaps oh yeah but chelsea can do it and it's all about rewilding it's obviously the trend so maybe this is actually going to happen so okay we'll come back to you on what flowers we should actually grow for pollination um so marianne Obviously, you're into sustainability and gardening and gardens that are sustainable. But what does that actually mean? You know, when should you start at what stage in the planning and thinking about gardening and a new flower growing plot or anything you're doing in the garden? So you think about sustainability. So I think it's one of those things that we sometimes bring in towards the, the end of the garden when we think, oh, right, well, now I mustn't put any peat in my plant pots or something. But actually, the bigger picture is is just as important so if i'm um if i'm invited to a new build for example sometimes before the architect has even finished um we can we can orientate the house to make make sure that we use best solar gain or best use of wind Uh, and if the house is there already then you can make sure that you you're growing things around it for for the benefit of the house as well as for the garden so for example if you've got a south facing window it's quite a good idea to put uh, a tree, a deciduous tree near it so that you get the lovely shade in the summer, but also you get the light coming through it in the winter and climbers up walls and things like that. And if, if I was going to start a new growing plot, then I'd want to make sure that I had the right orientation of the slope. So if it was a vegetable garden, it's wonderful if you could have a south or west gently sloping plot. Um, I didn't know that when I moved here, however 
30 years ago or something and my my vegetable gardens in a frost pocket so I can tell you from experience that that's not the right thing to do and that's the great thing about gardening is we're never you know we never get everything right and every day is a learning day so yes avoid your frost pockets um and also you can do things like if you've got lots of wind you can mitigate that by putting um uh, growing things to to feather the wind you don't want a hard wall because the wind will come over and make a um uh, an eddy on the other side but if you can have a lovely hedge for the wind to feather through or trees and if you've got if you're on a hill you can get the trees further down the hill and if you're on a small london plot or a small uh, plot then how how can you integrate with your neighbors so share some of their assets and give them some of yours whether it's an overgrown tree or holes in the hedge for creatures to come through or share a compost heap i so often hear people say i haven't got space for this in my garden i think well i bet that if you and your neighbor combined you'd have space for a compost heap and that sort of thing so yeah all those sorts of things can come in right at the beginning uh, of planning where your drainage goes all those sorts of there's things. lots we can do in our gardens to be more sustainable then and to both you know increase wildlife and increase insects a quick checklist of what they might be well i think when i first if i was first starting if i bought a new garden a new a new to me garden one of the things i'd be thinking of is what can i reuse that's already there because a lot of people come in and they say, all oh, right, well, let's, you know, blank canvas, I, that phrase blank canvas, you think there's no such thing as a blank canvas. Nothing's ever blank. You know, there's always something growing, some people living there. Everything you rip out is somebody's home. So whether it's the paving stones, who's living under that, you know, whether it's the hedge, who's living in that. So there's no such thing as a blank canvas. How can we use what's already there? And the garden, one of the gardens I'm most proud of is a garden in London where we only took out one branch in the whole garden and it was a no-skip garden, um, so we reused everything we possibly could. Everything we couldn't, we sold or gave away. Um, and so paving stones, soil, everything can be reused um, or swapped with somebody else for the things you want. So I think, yes, you, you mentioned Chelsea. Don't follow the trends. I love magazines. Don't follow the magazines. Go with what you think is beautiful and reuse what's there. Yeah, we wild them. Lots and lots of weeds. We love them. <laughs> So, so, David, on to you. Um, what are the main su- sustainability challenges facing the cut flower industry? Because obviously as a flower farmer, there is lots of talk about sustainability and there's lots of talk about eco and there's lots of talk about not using pesticides and herbicides and you know, reducing air miles and all sorts of things we talk about. But really, in reality, how can we be more sustainable? Well, yeah, that's a that's a big question. So, I mean, Flowers are a really kind of contradictory um, product. I'm mm-hmm. going to call them a product because that's what they are. They ultimately they're worth you know billions of, of US dollars, euros, pounds, whatever currency you want to uh, discuss across the whole global economy. But when it comes down to the the, the reason we, we share them, give them whatever, or provide for ourselves, it's always about an expression of care and love. Um, you know, there's a, there's an awful lot goes into the the you know, the donation of flowers to someone else. Um, and there's whole studies have been done on, you know, all the sort of like health benefits of receiving flowers, having flowers in your home and so forth. Um, and obviously there is this thing about the connection with nature, you know, that something living you're, or, or was living until it was chopped, you know, that you're, you're sharing with, with someone else. So that there's these really interesting things around the ethics of care. But when you kind of dig 
around in the supply chain, um, it can make you just go, ooh, that's not quite maybe what people think they're sharing uh, because there's there's all kinds of, of issues. You know, if you lift, lift the veil, maybe you see a very different image of what's represented in that bouquet. So um, carbon footprints become one of the big things that's received a fair amount of pub- publicity within the cut flower industry um, and certainly amongst sort of consumer environmental groups because the the carbon footprint of your typical bouquet is staggeringly high. Um, the reason being that a lot of flowers are grown in Kenya or Ethiopia or Colombia and then flown into Holland and then transported to the UK, um, you know, which is problematic. Or even if they're grown more locally, they may be grown in heated greenhouses um, out, you know, out of their natural season. And actually the carbon footprint of a rose grown in a Dutch greenhouse can be very, very similar to the to a rose that's been flown in from Kenya. So that those those can be quite shocking things when when people start to to realise those effects. But it's not just about carbon, which obviously is one of the big topics of the day. It's also about water usage, because um, obviously in the context of climate change, water availability, you know, droughts occur can occur in all kinds of situations. Even in we think of Britain as soggy, but we still get droughts from time to time, particularly localised droughts. Flowers are very thirsty product. If you're growing them somewhere like Kenya, um, you know, where water can be a much scarcer resource, well, the, f- the water embedded in a stem of, of a rose is actually quite considerable and that's effectively exported to other countries. So that can be a concern. The use of chemicals, a lot of chemicals can be used on flowers to create that uniformity in their appearance, um, you know, to keep the, the bugs and away and the diseases away. And yeah. so- and, and that can be problematic. I mean, there's a study been done on florists in Belgium, which demonstrated they were being exposed to dozens of chemicals, even some that were banned and shouldn't have been on there at all, causing eczema and asthma and all kinds of other conditions. You know, and that's a very recent study. So, you know, that's a real concern. Um, other issues can also be to do with the labour rights of the, the people doing the work in flower farms. And that can actually apply as much to daffodil growing in the UK, where seasonal labour can be difficult to source uh, as it as it might do on a flower farm in Kenya or Ethiopia or wherever. So quite a lot can be going on. Now, I'm not saying that every bouquet is, has got an awful things behind it, but there are these issues that the flower industry it has begun to address um, in various ways, but it's certainly a very different image to the idea that they've just come out of the local meadow, um, you know, or whatever, um, which some people do kind of have. People, you know, so that thing about people don't realise that milk comes from cows. Well, people seem to think flowers kind of materialise from some beautiful bucolic setting, and unless they come from a certain class of grower, who we'll talk about later, um, <laughs> they're there, you know not going to they come from much more factory production style of uh, of horticulture stay with us we'll be right back the small business do reels get you reeling is seo just a three letters put together content planning something you know you should be doing but just never get around to it do join our growth club online what is it It's a supportive community. It's all about growing your business. It provides trainings and guest speakers join us every month. Is it time to work on your business and not in it? The link for more information is in the show notes. 
Yeah, it's quite frightening. I think if you uh, asked the, did a survey of the average, you walked down the high street and you said, where do you think the flowers in this shop come from? I, w- I bet that more than 90% would say Holland. Mm. Nobody would really understand that actually they actually come from Kenya and Ethiopia and Holland is just the wholesaler for Europe, really. And that, uh, and, uh, and actually a wholesaler for further afield in some respects is shipping from Holland into the States, which mm. I, I can't really get my head around how you would ship flowers from Kenya to Holland and then Holland to the US. So that's even worse in terms of carbon footprint. But that's, um, yeah, that's really quite fun. So we need to respond to those challenges, of course. And I've been a flower farmer for over 12 years. And I've certainly seen some changes, I want to say, probably not as fast as I'd like it to happen. Um, But it's got to come from both ends, hasn't it? It's got to come from the consumer demanding, you know, that actually we don't want roses on Valentine's Day. That's the consumer obviously driving that, that's going to be a problem. And then it also has to come from the supply chain, the other end, because how does, you know, flower farmers, let's say in the UK, have enough of anything to supply at the right time to the right people. And there's this whole supply chain about how you get your product into the hands of florists, which is a really big problem, because unless you can get your flowers from my farm into a florist's hands easily, it is never going to happen. That florist is never going to choose 50 cornflowers from me and 50 roses from someone else and, and take a whole day going around all the farms in Buckinghamshire to find what they actually want to do to a wedding. So unless we join together and form co-ops and unless we find a supply chain that works or we work with Amazon or Deliveroo or anybody in a deliverable product, we'll, we'll never solve it. I don't think we'll ever solve it. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that maybe my legacy will be that I've set up co-ops in Britain or I've done something that gets it in the hands of florists because unless we do that will never happen and therefore the industry will always stay quite small mm. so I think there are some major challenges oh there are in, in all, all kinds of uh, shapes and sizes those challenges as well but what's very heartening is the number of initiatives exactly as you described that are setting up and are starting to happen through groups like flowers from the farm and so forth and uh and obviously, the piece de resistance was the uh, the flowers for the coronation yeah. this summer. You know where they were all sourced um, local, or well, not local necessarily local in some ways, but certainly they were local in the sense they were from the kingdom, um, yeah. but all seasonal. You know the 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 florist designer who who did it, the floral designer who did it, the whole thing um, procured. I think it was from eighty eight small scale growers plus some, um, you know. Um, and, call it uh, RHS gardens and the whole thing was just British flowers but everything what and foliage but everything was in season and it was interesting how actually the cooperative supply chain did actually set up and there's a really interesting story about that which we won't go into now but it's a, but it, it was a really interesting moment because it showed the ability um for for that kind of thing to actually happen on a big scale on the international stage you know where quality was absolutely critical and there it was yeah. You know, stuff that people had cut, popped into buckets, transported off to a local hub, whizzed down to uh, Gloucestershire where it was all being uh, sorted out. And there it was all in Westminster Abbey as required, looking splendid. So, you know, there is hope that, you know, that where there are opportunities, um, you know, different ways of organising supply chains can actually happen. You haven't just got to rely on the big things involving big trucks, you know, yeah. of, um, elsewhere in Holland or from Lincolnshire or whatever. So 
yeah, that's that's an interesting side. No, I think it's. Uh, I went to a conference in the US last August on uh, the cut flower speciality industry in the US, and I wanted to see what they were up to. And they were certainly a lot further advanced with cooperatives than we were. You know, there were there were cooperatives, um, a lot of them. They were working really well. They'd white labelled solutions. The supply chain was really working. And I was thinking, whoa, this is quite exciting because they're already doing it. And they have a very cooperative mentality and they collaborate a lot better than we do. So there's a bit of a change of culture that's got to go on as well. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, I, that's really interesting. I, it's an area I'd really love to explore mm. for sure. A cooperative for London is my next challenge to have a, whole, have a warehouse on the outskirts, oh, 35 miles from London, have a warehouse on the outskirts of London get all the flower farmers from the shires sourcing into London. And then you kind of cracked a massive population if you can get that bit right. Um, so that that would be my dream. And so. I think there's something to learn from the Regen Ag movement on this because the collaborative mindset is really the way that we are going to um, move away from a lot of the problems that we've got at the moment. So how can we work without using black glyphosate and how can we work without you know killing insects? And the wild farmed is another example of that, where they've they're coming together and they're sourcing um, pesticide free um, uh, grains and getting them into you know collaborating to get them into supermarkets or or to avoid supermarkets is the other way. So yes, I think yeah, the whole idea of collaboration has got to be at the basis of sustainability, hasn't it? It's a different way of thinking. Yeah, like it definitely bee. takes a culture, like a bee. It does take a. Well, they're very good at it. They're very good at it. They're very good. Uh, the bit I found very interesting about bees was that I learned this year that um, there was something about you know obviously you can buy lavender honey and you can buy some other honey and lots of different honeys and I kind of didn't really realise that that means that they've been feeding on the lavender and they've been feeding on these different plants. But I kind of then went one step further and thought, well, how can that happen? What does one bee wake up in the morning going, oh, come on guys, we're going off this way, we're going to have the lavender today, and that's what they live on. And kind of, I think it does. I think that the scout wakes up and goes, come on, guys, we're going this way. And it's all very collaborative. So I think, honestly, I think there's an awful lot we can learn. I just find it, while we're all sleeping, the bees are sitting there going, come on, guys, it's lavender today. And it's it's kind of a bit mind-blowing, really. Intelligent. Are they? Are these bees really that intelligent, Dave, that they go, come on, then, today we're going off to the, 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 the verbena patch? Not quite, but, but the, what they do is is pretty amazing uh I, i'm sure everyone's heard of the waggle dance um so what happens is if a bee finds a really good patch of flowers a field of lavender or a garden full of whatever it you know something that, that is producing loads of nectar or pollen then she goes back to the hive and rather than just dropping off the food and then going back to the lavender patch she sets about recruiting all of her chums her nest mates her sisters to go to the same patch because she can't collect all the food herself. So she does this weird. So basically what it is, is, is she, she runs in a straight line, buzzing in a particular way and waggling her bottom, hence the name waggle dance. And so she runs, so she, so sort of runs in a straight line and then she loops back, follows the same straight line, loops back the other way. And then just does that over and over again in the dark on the, on the surface of the, the comb. Um, and what it's doing is it's telling the other bees that which direction to go uh, and how far to go to find this patch of flowers. So the direction, the, the length of the 
straight bit is proportional to the distance they have to fly. I forget the exact <laughs> ratio, but it's every centimetre is a kilometre and a half or something. And the really cool bit is that the angle of the line, so if if it's if the flower patch is directly towards the sun, then she'll she'll do the, the straight bit of the run will be vertical. But if it's if if she wants them to go west, then she does it horizontally and, and so on. So she's te- she's signaling which way to go. But the really weird thing is that she's doing this in, in the pitch black. They can't see the sun, but she's giving an indication of which where to fly with respect to the sun. Um, but the sun is moving while and she'll she'll be doing this dance for maybe two or three hours to recruit lots of nestmates. And as she as she knows the sun is moving, even though she can't see it, so she continually adjusts the angle of her of her of her run to make sure that the information she's giving is still accurate. It's really cool. So in that sense, bloody clever. Um, <laughs> I mean actually, you know, their brains are tiny, but but somehow they're capable of some pretty amazing feats of of communication and navigation and learning and and so on. I could bore you for hours, but I'll stay. <laughs> you couldn't bore me. You definitely couldn't bore me. I just find it fascinating that they can do that. And then, and you know, they haven't got small small brains, have they? they? Haven't really. And then you think, well, they have. We think they have, but they obviously haven't in one respect. So. Tell us then, if we're going to have more bees in our garden, I was a bit worried about this because I thought about being a beekeeper and then I thought about it and then thought, if I was a beekeeper, would that put off all the other bees that I want in my garden? Because I want massive diversity. I want every single bee that I can possibly imagine in my garden. And if I'm going to have bees, does that put off the ones that... So I've read that and then I was put off. So I've just carried on with encouraging bees and growing flowers to encourage bees. So tell us what what you think about beekeeping and what do you think about um, having, um, what flowers should we have for the wonderful pollinators and that the bees will love? Stay with us. We'll be right back. The new Plants of Distinction Autumn Catalogue is now available and contains over a thousand different flower and vegetable seeds with over 150 new and exciting varieties added this year alone. Cut flowers in an extensive array of individual colours are a speciality and added to this are many unusual annual and perennial seeds together with the hard to find heritage favourites. So if you're looking for something little different, be it choice cutting flowers suitable for both fresh and dried arrangements or cottage garden and container growing varieties, you need look no further. You can download or request a copy of the new autumn catalogue by visiting the website plantsofdistinction.co.uk where an exclusive 30% discount is available to all podcast listeners when ordering seeds by using the discount code CUTFLOWER30. Right, okay, so it's a bit of a controversial one and there's any beekeepers tuned in. I love honeybees. They're important creatures. I eat honey most days. Um, but it's there is absolutely crystal clear scientific evidence that there is competition between honeybees and, and wild pollinators for food, uh, for pollen and nectar, particularly in the modern world where there are often not that many flowers. And a beehive may have 60,000 mouths to feed. It's a big, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of bees. Uh, and so they strip the resources from from the surrounding landscape, which means there's not much food. So if you you did the right thing, if you want lots of 
pollinator diversity in your garden, then then don't keep honeybees, I'm afraid. Um, and it's a particularly acute issue in London where it's 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 really sad in a way because people think that they're helping the bees. You know, they've heard the bees are in decline and they think that if they, they have their own hive, they're doing their bit to help. And you, this become really trendy in people, you know, in flats in London, putting hives on their balcony and on their roof terrace and so on. But unless you're providing the flowers for them, you're actually kind of just actually putting more stress on the whole ecosystem. And there are about 10,000 hives roughly in central London now, which is way more than central London. You know, there just aren't enough parks and gardens to feed them. So the honeybees themselves don't do very well. They can't make much honey. They're hungry the whole time and, and there's no food for anybody else. So it's, it's a bit, it's perhaps it's a silly analogy, but it's a bit like someone thinking, you know, oh, birds are in trouble. I'd really like to help. So I'm going to keep chickens. It's, it's a different thing. You know, the honeybee is a domestic animal. It's important. It's wonderful. It does these amazing waggle dances um, and we should value them. But we don't want them in the wrong places and we don't want too many of them, basically. So I, I made the right decision. So, uh, and I actually don't like honey, so that was definitely a right decision. So, so, <laughs> so then going back to flowers that are good for pollinators. Then. Yeah, yeah, I forgot you asked that. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are absolutely loads of flowers which are both beautiful and attractive to pollinators. And I'm sure everybody listening has probably got some idea from what they've grown themselves, which ones attract bees. I mean, it's quite interesting that ornamental, some of them are absolutely useless for pollinators and some are really attractive. Some of my, my, my favourites tend to be native plants because I, I really, I think we should squeeze more native plants into our gardens. And some of them are beautiful and, you know, look, they're just as pretty as any exotic thing you might grow. So, um, I mean, a few of my favourites are marjoram, um, lovely plant and yeah. it attracts loads of different, not just bees, I get a lot of butterflies on my my marjoram and hoverflies and so on. Um, Vipers bugloss, bugloss um, is a glorious biennial with these big purple spot flower spikes that bees just go go absolutely crazy for. Um, comfrey is is a is a, a real yeah. favourite of bees and is dead easy to grow and is brilliant for making kind of liquid fertilizer and for composting and mulching and and so on. So it's kind of multi-purpose. Um, but they're just a few. I mean. Um, so then they're natives and there are lots of others. If people want more ideas, um, I've aside from my books that I've already plugged, which give Plug, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I've also made quite a few YouTube videos where I film what I the plants that I grow to encourage pollinators in my garden. So they're obviously free. Um, a couple of others while I'm at it. I mean, the, the bog standard favorites, but they really are attractive to bees. Are Lavender, of course, and um, catmint is actually one of my one of my go-to plants. I mean, I've got a huge patch of it, and it's been flowering. It's still flowering strongly yeah. now. It's been flowering since oh, I forget when, late May, and it's just completely full of bees every day of the year. Well, you know, every day through the spring and summer. So they're just a few, but I go two. around taking photographs of bees on flowers. I've got a bit of an addiction. So uh, scabious, yeah. for sure. Scabious, yeah. If I could just say, just uh, something I forgot to say. Um, if you can, try and provide flowers through the spring and summer. Um, so that because particularly things like bumblebees, they they need a continuity of food. If there's a month with nothing for them to eat, their nest will die. And ideally, try and 
provide a range of flowers because different insects like to visit different flowers. Some There are some species of bumblebee with really long tongues that like things like honeysuckle and foxgloves uh, because the nectar in those is hidden at the end of a kind of a tube which the short-tongued bees can't reach. So ideally have a load of shallow flowers and some some of the deeper flowers and so on. It's quite you can't cater for everything all of the time unless you've got thousands of acres and a team of gardeners. But um, but try your best to have a nice mixture of, of different flowers and uh, hopefully that you'll keep most of the bees happy most of the time. I'll certainly try. So Can talking you add to that on, on Rolls, just on if you're planning the whole garden, not just the flower farming, is the hedges and the trees. Uh, I'm sure they've well, both David and Dave would, would agree that um, loads of flowers on trees and, and we have a sort of list of trees which flower through the year so that you do get the winter um, pollination as well, feed the odd, because you do get the odd bumblebee that stumbles out at sort of Christmas Day and you think, what are you doing? <laughs> but they are sort of wandering about looking for something to, some, something to drink, aren't they? Um, yeah. So, yes, hedges. Trees. And you mentioned soil, Dave. Marianne, what what about soil? You know, we talk a lot about soil. We talk a lot about um, damage we're doing to soil. What would be your recommendations on soil? We all talk, I mean, this this um, webinar was soil to sky, so we had decided to talk about soil. What's your thoughts about soil? What can we do? Well, what I get as that? excited about soil as um, Dave does about bumblebees, actually, because there's so much going on. It's incredible. Once you start looking at the plant roots and you see how they've got the nodules to fix the nitrogen and how your your weeds might be telling you what's happening in your soil, whether you've got compaction or whether they're, the weeds are fixing it for you. But then the creatures under the ground, so you were saying how clever the bees are with their waggle dance. But if you think that, so the roots, are, people may know this already, but if you have a normal plant with its roots underground, then those roots uh, are sending messages out to certain bacteria, asking the bacteria to go and fetch different um, nutrients for them. So, and they're exchanging the plant exudates. So when a tree takes in the sugars from the sun to grow, it doesn't use all those sugars, at least sort of 40 to 60 percent. It then sends out in the soil, which it then gives to all the bacteria and the, uh, the other creatures under the, the soil, obviously the fungi who talk to each other. And that's amazing to think that that's all happening under the soil. But what it also tells us, it really brings home if we think that uh, earthworms are at the top of the sort of size scale underground. Then you've got your nematodes, your protozoas, your ciliates all the way down. So that, that really brings home to us, if you've got your extra mycorrhizal fungus, which allows your plants to get nutrients from further away, if you dig, you're chopping that fungus off. So you are shrinking back the range that your plant can get help from. If you put glyphosate down, similarly, you're killing off all those extra areas and you're also killing off that whole band of creatures which are helping to grow your plants. If you put a fungicide down, you're killing the fungi underground. So I think if you can understand the sort of picture of what's actually happening, it really helps to visualise what helps the soil and what hinders the soil. So adding organic matter, adding a biocomplete compost, putting all of those creatures in really helps your plants to grow. So if you're a flower farmer, which I'm not, then that's really the best way to, to up your, um, your sales 
And if you've got all of those predatory creatures in a whole ecosystem, then you're not going to have holes in your leaves and eaten plants as well. If you've got image as well in your mind of all these organisms underneath the soil and you've got them as sort of like we're talking to each other and you've got them and the fungi, we can have lots of jokes about fungi, but then they're all having a fun time until you come along with your lovely herbicide and pesticides and you put it on because you want to get rid of your black spot on your roses or whatever it happens to be, then actually the fun guys are not having such a fun time anymore. And I think if you can visualise that, maybe you just can't use them anymore. I can't. I physically can't do it. I, I can't. I'm like, it's abhorrent to me to even think I'm going to kill something. Um, also, every time you dig the soil and chop it up, you're chopping up all that fungi so it's got to start again. So, yes, that's that's the other thing to think about, which is why people go to no dig and why they go to companion planting and layered planting and so on. Yeah. yeah. We say cardboard. I'm known as the cardboard lady in the village. So anyone's got any cardboard, it always ends up with me. I've got more cardboard than I know what to do with. But, yeah, in terms of no dig, it's it's great because I'm I, I, there's no way I'm going to dig anyway, to be honest. There's absolutely no way I'm going to dig the land. But, um, yeah, it's like, oh. so, David, I've got a question for you. So we talk about wild foliage mm. in the cut flower industry. Tell us about wild foliage. What is wild foliage? Well, yeah, this is what I was called the Cinderella sector within the, uh, the cut flower industry. <laughs> because obviously, everybody just thinks about the roses and everything else that blooms and, and all the rest of it. But often, if you look in a bouquet, you'll see there's some stems with green leaves in there, which um, without even realising it, it's all, you know, as a, when you're looking at the bouquet, it's actually a really important part of the design. It's offsetting uh, the other colours, as well as, to be blunt, helping to fill out the volume of the bouquet so that <laughs> you think you're getting a really nice deal um, with lots and lots of stuff there. That's actually part of the motivation for, you know, how these things are designed. But actually about... 15, 12, 15% of the whole cut flower industry, actually, the value of it is the foliage. And foliage can be cultivated. Um, so you find crops like eucalyptus being grown, laurel being grown, um, and, and many, many others. Um, but a lot is also harvested from the wild. Um, now, that can be species like, I was in Ireland last week, where rhododendron is running riot. It's just, you know, it was popped over there at some point in the history of Ireland. It shouldn't have been there, and it's just dominating the landscape. But the good news for the companies who um, harvest and then sell onto the bouquet makers is that it's a very popular leaf um, to, to use within bouquets. So huge numbers of stems of rhododendron are, are harvested over there, and it's just taken from the forests. Um, it just grows in the undergrowth, um, and teams of harvesters go in, cut it, take however many tens of thousands of stems they've been ordered to, to take that day, and off they go. And this happens all over the world um, with different products. So in South Africa, there's a lot of foliage harvested uh, from the mountains and the lowlands of the Western Cape in the Cape Floral Kingdom, mm. where there's an incredible, um, incredibly beautiful biome there, one of the most biodiverse areas of, on the planet. And several dozen of the species there are, are harvested from the wild, um, including some that do actually have flowers. Some of the proteas are actually uh, take, taken from the wild as well. In the northwest, um, in Washington State, in northwest USA, a product called salal is harvested in, in immense numbers from the forests there. 
and in Mexico, the product called Chico as well, which is taken and quite a controversial one in uh, Catalonia is pistache, which at the moment is very, very popular in uh, bouquets you'll see in some of the supermarkets because at the moment, for various reasons, it's very cheap hey. uh, and it's uh, very pretty as well. Um, so, yeah, so it's a really, really interesting little sector, but it's not that little because the total value of it globally is over a um, about over $100 million just on the trade from the country of origin, um, never mind the value that's added by the time it's put into the bouquet and then the bouquet is marked up and and, and traded and so forth. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting thing, the wild foliage. Um, now, there are sustainability issues. Um, the, the negative ones are the encouragement to cultivate um, rather than take from the wild which can often mean putting invasives down like eucalyptus that shouldn't be growing, um, you know, in certain ways. I mean, that happens a lot in South Africa and it's a terrible thing to have going through the through the landscape because it uh, uses up a lot of water. And it also, if you get a wildfire, it burns like crazy because of the resins and it just whizzes through yeah. the landscape. Um, so that, that can be problem. There can be problems with over harvesting. There can be problems with stealing of this stuff because obviously big forests, you can just sneak in where people aren't looking with your white van and uh, 10 pickers and some shears and off you go. And funnily enough, there are some unscrupulous people who will just buy stuff without knowing where it's come from as long as the price is right. And it looks okay. And I'm afraid to say that does happen all over the world. And that's one of the projects I'm involved with is trying to um increase the transparency in those supply chains to cut that kind of behavior out because there's lots of very honorable firms doing it all properly with permits employing people properly and the rest of it but they get undercut by these more informal um operators who are getting up to all kinds of mischief i was told in ireland last week about one landowner who watched a team turn up and uh, they were removing rhododendron from his land and they were go off they'd pick then they'd bring back their bundle put it down they were building up this pile which during the day got bigger and bigger so about three o'clock when the pile's quite big the landowner who was very cross um, having his stuff nicked just walked up with a big pot of blue paint and threw it straight over it and said there you go sell that guys there's a bit of a message um but uh yeah but obviously then he's bit causing an awful lot of waste and polluted the environment so he shouldn't have done it but uh, you can understand his his frustrations with all of that. So yeah, it's a it's a really interesting sector. Please, you know, next time you're in a florist's or in the supermarkets, just have a look and just see, you know, what's in there that's green and think about what it's adding and think about its journey. Um, now, what I do like about the wild foliage in particular is if it's growing in the wild, genuinely in the wild, actually things like the carbon footprint is negligible to nil to actually a really good thing because you've got potentially a shrub or a tree that's just growing for its entire natural life cycle of decades. And therefore, it's sequestering a load of carbon. Nobody is going to go in and rip it out after 12 years like they would on a, whatever on a, on a uh, rose farm because it's no longer productive. It's just there in the wild. So you're creating an economic reason to actually leave the um, the wild landscape, uh, you know, as it is. So that's that's pretty cool. Obviously, their water usage is just whatever nature drops on them. It's not irrigated or anything if it's growing in the wild. So that's a good thing. Um, and uh, obviously, it's providing livelihoods often in very remote areas where livelihoods for people are are very limited. So 
there's some you know and then the biodiversity side is fascinating as well because the insects and the small mammals and all the rest of it have you know got this landscape to live in you know with their little micro ecosystems you know in all these shrubs and and so forth so there's a really interesting side to the wild foliage which really contrasts actually with a lot of the farm produced pretty flowers that that everybody's so interested in and uh, that's why I'm fascinated by this sector and trying to get more research going to really start to quantify uh, some of these other benefits and then look at and manage better uh, going forward to cut out the more negative. I think the way forward could be, it would be lovely, this was also one of my legacies besides being cooperative, would be uh, to be labelled would be quite nice. And if flowers in supermarkets or flowers just generally had a label on them which said where they came from, then the consumers could make a choice. Because at the moment, consumers can make no choice at all. They go and it's got number 12655 on and they have no idea where it's come from. It'll be a mixed bouquet generally and it'll be a mixed wherever it came from. And I think then how can a consumer make a conscious choice? And I think I'm not quite sure why everything else is labelled and everything else has a point of origin. But for some reason, we can't get a point of origin. And therefore, that's a massive problem. If we could resolve that, I think we could resolve um, oh, a lot. We could resolve an awful lot. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one, the labelling on flowers. Oh. You know, so there are a lot of certifications, but they aren't, apart from fair trade, they're not shared with the consumer. So you don't know, you know whether the, the flowers no. have got a, an environmental or social certification. Now, the, the thing around point of origin is fascinating. I won't name the supermarket, but one of them the other week I noticed had a Union Jack on a bouquet with truly British and I was trying to work out what's the difference between British and truly British. You know, is, is there some <laughs> middle ground where you're British but not truly British? I don't know. I think one of our one or two of our politicians may have something to say on that, but I'll leave that one out for the idea of. Uh, that sounds like a Michael McIntyre sketch coming up. It does. It? I think that could be truly British. And then the other thing was, it also just had the word seasonal. Now, seasonal sounds lovely and cuddly, doesn't it? But does seasonal mean grown? naturally or is it still no. because it's seasonal to wear you know everything's seasonal in the sense that well it's it's right you know it's, it's come to its flowering point blooming in this season yeah true yeah but, roses are seasonal in february nature. in kenya yeah it doesn't so mean it's a nature so there's there's a lot of trickery going on because the 100%. markets are realizing the language as, as can be seen in your comment section you know people like to see certain words on on things so they're just capturing the word but they're not telling you what that word actually means and that is deeply problematic and again that's part of the work we're involved with is is trying to deal with you know what is effectively greenwash um just trying to get the consumer to conjure up a particular image in their mind i mean the other other one you see actually with tomatoes is when you see on the side of the van you know it says fresh and I look at it and go, well, I know that would have been picked at least three weeks ago. And it's just sat in a chiller, you know. So, and, it, and actually, that's another one we, we were talking about on flowers. We saw yes, right, there was an advert for sea freighted flowers and it said fresh. And you're going, well, if it's sea freighted, it's taken three to six weeks to get here. Um, so, what does fresh mean? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't smell horrible. I don't know. So, you know, there's all this stuff around language that, that's really, really fascinating. Um, so, uh, so, there you go. Um, yeah, so there's lots of fascinating things going on. The industry is dealing with these challenges, um, but obviously dealing with mean can mean lots of different things, you know, while they're coming to grips with it in terms of how they market things, whether it's greenwash 
or, or whatever. But there are some very positive initiatives as well. But there's some fabulous stuff going on at the grassroots, you know, like the flowers from the farm group and people like them who are actually getting a bigger and bigger toehold um, within the market and getting a lot more traction. Um, so I think that, um, you know, there's real space for optimism. But even with that, with that, there's still a lot of greenwash goes on even amongst some of the small producers. You know, some people tell you, oh, so-and-so's website says, you know, X and Y. And then someone will say, but I know they've imported X and Y or they grew that in a greenhouse and heated it. And there they are saying it's seasonal and whatever. So we're looking at developing a standard um, through our project um, that can be used by British growers if they truly subscribe to sustainability um, with a set of principles of what it means to be sustainable, which people sign up yeah. to, and then some kind yeah. of ch- checking system to come in so that you can say, right, you know, if you're using this logo, then it means you've committed to the following things and there's evidence you're actually doing them because um, we feel that's the way to go. And it will really then empower that uh, the small scale sector, British sector to crack on and make a serious dent in the market. And I don't think it's just about flowers. It's about changing consumer mindsets about everything we buy. And if you can get people to think about flowers um, in a more sustainable way, then surely that behaviour will then disseminate into other choices that people make. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This podcast episode is sponsored by First Tunnels, leaders in domestic and commercial polytunnels. A polytunnel is an amazing protective environment for plants, vegetables and flowers, extending any growing season. And whether you're growing for pleasure or commercially, whether you go for a small or a large tunnel, you can be assured of the same high quality product from First Tunnels Polytunnels. I personally have three of their polytunnels, Two of them I've had for over 10 years and I highly recommend First Tunnels Polytunnels for their product and also for their great customer service, which is second to none. Do pop over to their website and take a look at their range. www.firsttunnels.co.uk I hope so. I truly hope so. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I take flowers to a London flower market, and it's great to see that a London flower will not allow you to take your flowers to their market until they've been to your farm, number one. So they've looked that you are a certain distance from London, so there, there is a choice about they, that over a certain mileage they wouldn't accept you. And secondly, that you're not using pesticides and herbicides, and, and thirdly, that the producer is actually the person on the stool, not that you've got a third party to run it. So it's all kind of quite interesting how that's, how a business like London Flower Market, they have about 15 across London, have managed to try and at least visit people to see what they're trying to do. They can't, they can't, I mean, the, the issue is they can't test whether you've got pesticides or herbicides and the next few could be using them on Tuesday and they could have visited you on Friday. But at least it's a start. At least it's something which says, let's look after our soil, let's look after our insects, let's look after sustainability. Um, I thought the greatest marketing of all was a I'm not going to name the company, but it's what they know those flowers that come through in a cardboard box through the letterbox that everybody buys that are owned by investment companies. And um they generally said seasonal flowers on all the boxes from Jan- from January to December it says seasonal flowers. And I'm thinking I don't think they are, but it's again it's the use of language. I'm a marketeer and have been for years. So a seasonal, you know, 
scented, all those beautiful words are very great, but um, we're going to have to get a bit more um, qualification in the market, I think. And ultimately, two things will drive the market. Consumers, i.e. on price, they'll say, I'll buy that because of the price. And then consumers by choice, and they will drive the market and decide how that whole market is going to. So ultimately, we're all trying to, to, to get to change consumer mindset. Um, and, I, and I try my hardest with the groups I've got, Facebook groups I've got, my Instagram. I, I mean, I must be addicted to social media, I've decided. In fact, I think I am an addict. And uh, and I'm on it daily. Probably lots of you see that I'm on it daily, but and and hopefully those messages are getting through eventually. You know that we're actually trying to do something different. But yeah, I shall carry on with my bumblebees and my and my bees and my pollinators and my soil and my composting and my oh my goodness, we are going to change collaboration in the UK and we are going to try and get people to work together and and a stamp of approval on something would be amazing. Um, and I think the Flowers from the Farm organisation has changed too. I'm talking to them today and it has changed. It's come a long way. And they too have a different leadership now and, and therefore hoping that things will change there too and that they'll have a strong voice. So it's all of it really. But um, thinking, I've got one last question for you, Dave Gorston. Bee hotels, should I have a bee hotel? Am I, am yes. I all right with that? Yeah, yeah, bee hotels are cool. Bee hotels are trying to provide nest sites for some of the solitary bees, which make up the bulk of the 260-odd British bee species. So they're not social like a bumblebee or a honeybee. They don't live in a hive. There's no queen. Just a female bee makes a, a, a nest on her own. And particularly there's a species called the red mason bee, um, which, yeah. which really likes horizontal little tunnels. Um, there are quite a few other species you might get as well but that's the the usual one they, they really do work there's no guarantee i i put one up and it nothing happened for two years and i was getting a little bit despondent but then one moved in and then the next year there were 10 and the year after that there were more than i could count and now i've got i've got about nine b hotels and they're all full most of the time um and i put i have them on the wall of the house next to the where i have coffee in the morning next to a patio and you can just sit sit there and have coffee and watch and it's, I, mean, I think it's really cool. They're a great way to kind of engage people with nature because you can you can sit and watch these busy bees going backwards and forwards and they, they call mason bees because they use mud to seal up the tunnels when they're full of their offspring. And you get, par- you get cuckoo bees scouting around trying to sneak in and lay their eggs and little parasitic wasps. And there's a whole little ecosystem there. I also have woodpeckers come and eat all the baby bees occasionally, which is slightly frustrating, but... But, you know, it's all part of nature. Um, So, yeah, I mean, not all the designs on sale are brilliant. Um, uh, Look for something that has whole sizes of about eight millimetres are good for the red mason bees. And then a few bigger and smaller ones will do for might attract some other species Um, and put it. I think the biggest thing that people do wrong is. It needs to be firmly attached, ideally to a to a sunny-ish wall or fence rather than a tree or hanging in a shrub. Um, if you put it on a tree, I, I find that earwig hotels always fill up with earwigs. And earwigs are great. I love earwigs. But if you want bees, once the earwigs have moved in, the bees will not move in. So you, 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 And 
there's a, long, there's a long story to explain why you would get earwigs on trees. But anyway, I won't, I'll spare you. Um, but so, so a fence or a wall and uh, somewhere sunny, about kind of chest height and cross your fingers and hope. And, and if you're lucky, it's a pretty good chance, if you're patient, eventually they'll arrive. And, and when they do arrive, you'll know and they'll multiply. And it's, they're, they're fun. They're lovely little things. Great pollinators of fruit trees, particularly. Mm. And a last question for you, Marianne. In your book, you talk about starting with kindness and connection. How does that work in a practical sense? How can we start with kindness and connection when we talk about sustainability? So I think, well, it, I think it covers what both Dave and David and, and you have been saying, really, that um, if we are kind to ourselves and we are all part of a whole, then that, by being kind to ourselves, we're then kind to everything else. So if you're kind to yourself, you're not going to stomp on a bee because the bee's out pollinating <laughs> for you and looking after you and being beautiful and creating the whole um the whole system and connecting i think it can be as tiny as noticing and you know how how great you feel if somebody says oh you look great today or i love what you said or something i think it's the same with the bees and with the birds and with everything if we can just notice them and connect with them i think we are honoring them and we're realizing that we're all part of one big thing and that's the beginning of um of being kind really mm, i love your book by the way I've got all your books. I'm an absolute book addict. And I'm sitting in my study here and I think, oh, my goodness, that, those books. And um, my husband thinks that a book a day arrives at my house. So because um, I moan about all the parcels he gets and he says, well, what about all those books you get? every day?" <laughs> so he's kind of got used to that. So, so David, one last question for you. That, that It's quite controversial, really, because we're sort of talking about British flowers and being in Britain and growing British flowers. I'm trying to stop the imports from Kenya, Ethiopia and Colombia. What damage does that do to those people's livelihoods? Because I've always thought, OK, well, if we they have an industry, don't they, that we we have all in the wor- worldwide gone into. And we are we are conscious of the fact that if we're cutting that. I mean, I know that 95 percent of the flowers in Britain are imported anyway. It's huge, absolutely huge. But even if we moved it 5%, what impact would that have on, on those standard of livings of those, of those countries? Sure. I mean, yeah, this is one of the great tensions, and it's about what, which ethics matter and in which way. Um, I mean, I always tr- try and tread a very fine line on this one because ultimately, like you say, those, those trade systems are in place. Um, a lot of livelihoods depend on it, and I think that's really important. And I think that as things currently stand, there's no major problem if people make the choice that they wish to buy some flowers from those supply chains. I mean, obviously, the fair trade ones are probably the best ones to be going for. And I know like church groups and so forth will often favour looking for fair trade flowers because that fits in with, with the broader ethos of what they're doing. Uh, so I would certainly wouldn't say there needs to be some blanket ban on in, importing from Africa or, or wherever. Um, because, because especially bearing in mind that so much of it's coming from Holland anyway, and ultimately the carbon footprint, like I said earlier, of um, a Kenyan rose is little different to one grown in a heated greenhouse, um, you know, a non-renewable energy source greenhouse in Lincolnshire or 
or Holland. So from the, the carbon argument, it doesn't make a lot of difference. And there are a lot of moves actually to sea freight flowers now. And the, the carbon footprint of sea freighted flowers from Kenya is about 85% lower, uh, maybe 90%, depending on which statistics you believe or, you know, want to use, um, than, than flown flowers. So it, it's quite a complex terrain. And I think there's a lot of different things for a consumer to, to think about, frankly. Um, but certainly supporting, you know, locally grown is is lovely. But, you know, you don't know whether locally grown's got slave labour from, um, you know, from gang masters and all the rest of it, because that's quite not unknown, shall we say, in the British horticultural sector. So there's a lot of really fascinating things to think about. And I think it's just about due diligence, really, as a consumer, if you love your flowers, and just do a bit of reading around, you know, talk to your florist or read about um, things, look on the flowers from the farm website and, you know, make the decision that suits you. But definitely, if, if there's something there that you want to support, whether it's people getting a decent wage in Kenya and decent working conditions, then fair trade is for you. If you want to support, uh, you know, seasonal British flowers, then have a look on the flowers from the farm website, see who's around your, your area, give Ros a ring, obviously. Um, yeah. <laughs> and also there's a lot of word of mouth as well. You know, uh, one of my colleagues recently got engaged, another one of my colleagues, and they wanted to have uh, the most sustainable flowers they could get their hands on. So, and then he gave me 48 hours notice. So I was uh, <laughs> on that straight on the phone to uh, a very famous florist saying, where the hell did you get these from? And uh, he provided some guidance. So I think they got some fair trade, and uh, but also went, went with one of the, the flower farms who's got a pretty good reputation. So it's, it's an evolving territory. And the more people are asking questions, uh, the more that will move the industry along. And there's lots of initiatives going on, including the um, Sustainable Forestry Network training florists that's going to be launched yeah. I think, next week uh rita feldman's project and that could be a real game changer if if that really rolls out because uh, you know loads of great ideas in that particular um program which could really help to change the way people think and then that drives change in the industry because as we know we've heard uh, you know, yourself said if the consumer's money is going in a certain direction it's amazing how production follows very very fast you know um, mm. that's what people want so we've just got a few questions coming in. We'll just ask some of them. We can't possibly do them all. Um, someone, Lisa, has asked for the if any recent studies being cited. Could we have some links and so on? So perhaps, David, if you send me those, that would be fab. And like you say, the sustainable floristry. I've signed up to receive emails actually for that. So I was hoping to be part of that. So um, I can include that as well. Yeah, and our um, website, please. Which, um... You can add, but if any, if you just if anybody is really desperate to have a look, just Google "sustainable flowers Coventry" and you'll find our sustainable cut flowers project website and the various resources on there. I'm afraid the website does need a, a revamp by a decent designer and someone who understands technical stuff better than me, because um, I end up with strange formatting occurring. But um, the stuff on there and some of it I think is quite interesting um, that shows the things that we've done and it's got links to the you know the sustainable floristry network flowers from the farm and uh, lots and lots of industry stuff to show you know what's current and going on so i will make i will make a word document with all of your books dave and your book marianne as well and all of your links and everything so everybody knows where you all are so i'll put that all together marvelous um ruth has said i thought honeybees went off to places of high nectar such as all the brambles or or the small leaf lime trees rather than flower and they're in the garden. 
Don't know. Do they go after brambles and small leaf lime trees rather than flowers? Those are flowers, I believe. Um, but uh, uh, they they fe- they'll feed on anything uh, that provides them with sweet nectar or pollen. Um, they they honeybees because of the the waggle dance tend to forage more on on mass flowering crops and big patches of flowers. But some of them will will ignore the waggle dance and go off and find their own flowers. So you know <laughs> there, there are honeybees all over the, all the different flowers in my garden at the moment. There's some on the asters. There's some on the little bit of borage that is still flowering. Um, and there's a little bit of verbena that's still going, and they're on that. They're they're they're, they're opportunistic. They'll honeybees in particular have really broad tastes they'll visit hundreds of different flowers do insects use plants for medicines like we do oh if they're poorly do they go off and find something not so far as i know i've never heard of any evidence for that um there is a quite an interesting thing when when bees are infected with diseases they um, they spend the, they sleep outside the hive at night to keep cool, which means the disease progresses more slowly. So, kind of, it's, it's the nearest I can come to a self-medication wow. in, in insects. They'll go off to calendula to to heal things, and I don't know. It'd be really interesting to know. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah, I don't think anyone's really studied it. So, th- I want to thank you, at the bottom of my heart, for joining me tonight. That's been absolutely worthwhile. You'll all, those of you who are watching on replay will get this on replay. And then I will put together a document with all the links in it too and allow you to have that. And if you love this, we hope you'll come and join us over at the Best Bunch membership. That's a marketing ploy coming up with the Best Bunch uh, membership, which is a cut flower membership. And we'll be letting you know all about that in the emails you'll be getting in the next couple of days. So yeah, thank you very much for joining me. Really super. I could talk about this forever. You might, you might have guessed. And um, we look forward to yeah everybody else watching this and more questions coming in. And I just want to thank our panel. That was a really lovely, entertaining evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Take care. I look forward to next week's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate and review on your podcast app. We do have some wonderful free resources on our website at thecutflowercollective.co.uk. We also have two free Facebook communities, which we'd love you to join. For farmers or those who want to be flower farmers, we have Cut Flower Farming, Growth and Profit in Your Business. And our other free Facebook group is Learn with the Cut Flower Collective for those starting out on their flower journey. All of the links are below. I look forward to getting to know you all.